Episode number 89, Ann Glover, Canadian storyteller and strings specialist, developing your authentic voice and your authentic performance. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. This is Brother Wolf, and I'm so thrilled you have made it here again with us, that you have put aside all those distractions, all those troublesome queries, those emails, those letters, the phone calls, whatever you've been doing today, that you have put it aside, and you are going to focus here on us, because I have found, I have found a guest, and I know I say this every time, but it's true, it's true, I tell you, I have found a gem, a gem on the road. I am currently at the Talk Story Conference in 2009 in Waikiki, Hawaii. And here I met a woman that I had never even heard of before. And I watched her tell in the uh, national concert with some other big names that I would, would never has. I mean, you know, Jim May and Ethnotech and, and other people who are equally as famous. And Anne was amazing, just like all of them. And I was really impressed with her ability to relate to the audience and to use string in her performance as an artist. And in talking with her the last couple of days, you know, I just thought, well, string, you know, I, I don't really imagine that string makes a good audio interview. I'm really impressed with Ann Glover's ability to embody artistic professional presence and service to the moment. I was talking to her about this, and she was actually quite passionate about this idea of authenticity in one's performance, authenticity in in performance, and how artists can be more authentic in what they're doing in front of an audience. In particular, this idea that as storytellers, we don't have to actually be in a story every single moment in front of, in front of an audience, that we can, in some cases, actually move away from the story container and we can use other vehicles for expressing our artistic merit and our artistic presence uh, and artistic relationship with that audience. But I'll let her talk about that in a minute. Anne is a storyteller and educator and consultant based in Victoria, BC. She has been telling and doing string games for years. She's been on the road for over 20 years. She has produced, I just want to tell you this amazing DVD called Ann Glover's How to Make the Dog and Other Favorite String Tricks. Ann, I want to thank you for coming to my show. You're very welcome. It's nice to be here. So, Ann, do you have a story you could share with us? I always have a story I can share. <laughs> you meant now. <laughs> you meant, dude, I have a story I wanted to share, like, right now. Sure. What kind of story would you like? Oh, hopefully a story that doesn't involve string. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, sorry, the string demanded. No, sure. What kind of story? Well, you really are amazing with your, your some of your voices. So if you have a story that involves a little bit of voice changeovers, that would be pretty cool. Serious story, sad story, comic story, scary story, 
I got an idea. Monkey, 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 I told you to stay over there. No, but I got an idea because I was listening, and you know what? Monkey, I gave you crayons, I gave you paper, I want you to stay. But, Anne, I got an idea, and you don't know what to say, so I know what to say. Monkey, please, we're doing an interview. I know, that's why I want to talk to you, because guess what? I noticed that you got a microphone there, and you know... Monkey... I've talked to you about this. No, but I... Anne? Yes, Monkey? Um, do you remember one time you promised me that sometime when you're talking on an interview that I could say a bad word on the microphone? Do you remember that? Monkey, I never said anything like that. Well, can I anyway? No. Please? Monkey, look, this is... Look, do you see this guy here? This Eric, Brother Wolf, like he's doing an interview. He's going to put this on a podcast and he's going to, everybody's going to listen to it. And you... No, but everybody will like to hear a bad word, right, Eric? Right? Eric, are you crying? <laughs> well, I could put a beep in. Uh, no, don't put a beep in because I, that would cover up my best word. I got a really... Monkey? Yeah? Ice cream later? What kind? Banana. Really? Mm-hmm. If you go over there... Yeah? And stay quiet. No bad word? No bad word, Monkey. Sorry. Okay. What if Monkey told us a story? Yeah, what if I tell a story about... Monkey? No bad word, though. Just a story. Okay, well, well, okay, well, um, okay, Anne, I got an idea. What's that, Monk? How about, um, I know, let's do that song. That song? Yeah, that one that you sing and I say what it means. The French song? Yeah. You always get it wrong. No, I don't. I get it right, and now I know how it goes. Okay. I've been practicing it. All right, all right, we'll do that one. It's, it's a ballad. It's from France. It's a, a ballad. It's a old song from long ago. And uh, see how does it start? Uh, you, you ready, monkey? Yeah, but just a second, Anne. Yes, monkey. Um. Uh. Do you think that they will be able to notice that I'm like not real, like the same kind of people as them? Monkey, it's fine. They. They, it's fine. They, you're you're fine, just the way you are. It's fine. Well, do you, um, is my tail showing? No, it's fine. Monkey, listen, this is just, it's just audio, okay? There's no picture. There's no camera. Oh, I get it. This is just for sound? Yes, yes. That's what we're doing here, sound. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, and well, can you start now? Okay, fine. I'm starting. Adieu, ma si charmante blonde, à qui j'ai donné mon cœur. Je m'en vais, je m'en vais, je m'en vais. Je m'en vais vaguer sous l'onde de paix. Je suis ton serviteur. Your turn, monkey. Okay, now it's my turn. Okay. Well, okay, so, um, well, this is a song in French, okay? So, it's about this guy. He has his, like he is a, like he is a boat. He has a boat and he's going away on the ocean or something. And he's, so he's talking to like his, like his girlfriend, okay? Like he has a girlfriend. Well, anyway, and so he's telling her like, well, I have to go away on the ocean on my boat. Okay, your turn. All right. You can, monkey, you can say it a little 
you know, you don't have to talk quite that much about Dad, hurry up. All right, all right. Mon cher amant, si tu me quittes, cher amant, si tu t'en vas, souviens-toi, souviens-toi, souviens-toi. Souviens-toi de la promesse que tu me fis hier au soir. Okay, well, now, um, this time it's the girl, she's like saying, oh, well, okay, if you have to go away, fine, but please just like remember the promise that you made me last night. And then he says, well, okay, but then all of a sudden out of the ocean comes a giant crocodile with four heads and snaps at them, snaps at that monkey and Monkey, that's not what the story is about, and you know it. It's not a song. It's not about crocodiles. Anne, don't. You're ruining it. They don't. They don't speak French. They don't know if they don't need to speak French, Monkey. It's obviously it's a love song. He's going away, saying I love you. I'm leaving. I'll be back. And she's saying come back. I know, but then it's so stupid because he says, she says I'm going away. She says okay, fine. He says, she says no, wait. She says come, promise me you come back. He says I promise. And then he goes away and he doesn't come back. It's always the same story. It's so boring, and it really would be much better with a crocodile with three heads in it. Monkey, how about if you just write your own story? I, I did. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well. All right. This is Doctor Marguerite Van Camp from Covington, Georgia, inviting all of y'all to listen to Eric Wolf uh, interviewing. He's interviewing Andy Offit Irwin on the art of storytelling with children. We'll have a, a conversation that y'all will be interested in hearing. And I, I think it will be lovely if, if y'all listen to it on your iPods, on your iPods. This, this character, Monkey, where does, he, where does he come from? Well, first of all, it's a common misconception, but Monkey is actually a she. And many people don't realize that. It's obvious to me because I've known her for so long. <laughs> But she evolved out of, actually at the time that I was started using storytelling at all, was with my stepdaughter who was then about two years old and she didn't want to go to the bathroom. And uh, so this monkey character appeared and said, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And so my stepdaughter said, well, I'm going to go to the bathroom too because she didn't want to be left out. So, so from then on, uh, monkey could get my stepdaughter to do anything. It was just uncanny, and they would have these long conversations, and it was really a three-way conversation, me and Monkey and my stepdaughter. So she's been around for quite a while. How is Monkey an example of authentic performance? Well, I didn't know that there was supposed to be a connection there. I just saw, you know. No, but I clearly <laughs> see any connection, so. Yeah, there is. It is. Um, so I'll have to hang, you know, sort of wing it a little bit here. Let's see. Authentic. Well, I like to have... In performance, I like to know my own, to have my own voice in connection with the audience. So I have, as a narrator or as the person who's on stage talking with the audience, I'm having a, a chat with the audience, basically. I'd, I'd like to keep my voice and my presence real. It's me. And when I'm in the story, the character, I can fully be the different characters, but I, I don't I don't abandon that other position. So I can always come back to this neutral, it's me, 
I'm here and I can talk to the audience and I can keep up a, a dialogue, a conversation going with the audience throughout throughout the story or the, throughout the whole performance. And I think that's an important thing to hang on to is that authentic, comfortable exchange, that, that position from which we can exchange comfortably with the audience. Even if they're not, I don't mean conversation in the sense that I talk, you talk, I talk, you talk, but in the sense that there is an exchange of I'm keeping, I'm watching my audience, I'm tuning into what, how they are, how they're responding, and it's easy, it's so easy to go in with material prepared and lose that connection with the audience. So when I talk about authenticity and voice, I'm also talking about that, maintaining that authentic connection with the audience, and it's, a, it's an easy thing to lose. It's it's very it's very can be very slippery, but I think it's critical to performance. Um, what are some ways to finding that authenticity inside ourselves as performers? One of the things that I like to do when I'm working with a performer is if I'm coaching somebody, I like to have them tell me the story as if we were sitting having supper together, and between bites, between mouthfuls, you're telling me the story. You're not performing it. You're not getting into the characters. You're just telling me what happens in the story. And we, you're, we're face to face. It's just, here's what the story's about. So I like to break it down to tell me what the story's about. Give me a synopsis. And usually when people do that, they will maintain their natural speaking voice. But they will often start to slide into a performance voice that's more breathy, more uh, theatrical. And that for me, is not their authentic voice. It belongs in part, it might belong in parts of the story, but to have that as the all the way through, to me, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't have the same resonance as if they're using their own true speaking voice and talking to me as an audience member. So the worst example of that is Sometimes in educational settings or libraries, you'll see someone say, you know, now, children, I'm going to tell you a story. Is that the sort of voice you're talking about? Oh, there's so many variations on that sort of voice. Yeah. And I think that if, to, I think that if performers or speakers, I mean, it applies to more than just, you know, it's not just storytellers, it's teachers, it's anybody in public speaking, anybody standing up in front of a group and addressing people. Uh, if you really pay attention to your audience, you'll know. That you're not you're not you're not coming from a you're not coming from your core from your center. You've got to find that place where you are really you. And a lot of times we go into this, we shift our voice out of a discomfort of being. It's it's there's a risk. Can I really be me in front of all these people? Will they accept me who I really am? Or maybe I better change who I am. You know, juice it up a bit. Turn up. You know, make it a little more uh, elaborate somehow. But really, just just to be oneself, to stand in front of a crowd of people or three people, whatever it is, and just speak normally. There's a, there's a risk in there and there's a richness in it. And I think that the audience perceives that. The audience goes, ah, this is, this is a real person. This is a, this is a real person's real voice. This is coming straight to me, not through filters. And how do we remove those filters or how do we find those filters or identify them? I guess it's a different thing for different people. I can say for myself, when I started out in performing, I got into this quite by accident. I never intended to be a storyteller, and I was sort of doing it before I realized that there was a label for what I was doing. 
but I remember my first times on stage in front of larger groups, and I remember the 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 anxiety in that, and you know the sort of singing on it when I move my hand away, you know, make a gesture with my hand, and I see my hand trembling over there. I go, what the heck is that? <laughs> Whose hand is shaking out there? That's me. Oh my goodness! So I could tell I was really nervous. And I remember the feeling of, I better do something special because otherwise this is going to be dull. It's just me. So you're not good enough. Right, right. So for me, coming to a place of comfort and going, okay, it's okay to just be me. And, you know, it's, it comes over time. It comes over a lot of experience and a lot of seeing what works and what doesn't work and just reaching a comfort in front of an audience. So what I hear you saying is that the biggest healer to this is just having time in front of an audience, just getting used to that. There, there definitely can take you a long time to develop a place where you believe that your authentic self can be valuable to someone else, that it can take you a long time to recognize. Because we all hear voices inside our heads from our childhood of people who tell us how not valuable we are or how useless the information we have to offer is. And it can take a long time to to learn to disregard that information. And sometimes in, in learning to disregard that information, we actually push through it so hard that that it's almost like our voice becomes too loud and we can't even hear the audience anymore. We're trying so hard to push. And we don't we're not even coming from our authentic self anymore. We're we're just looking to please maybe to please or to serve instead of to be ourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good point. I think a lot of times people get up We'll get in front of a group and we'll, they will have an agenda which is, it's easy to lose track of what is the point? Why am I standing here talking to these people? Why am I telling this story? Doing, yeah, let's say it's telling this story. For me, I'm telling this story to create a connection between me here and the people who are there. And there is a flow of energy, a, a circle of energy there. And it's easy to lose track of that and get wrapped up in all the intricacies of the story or the components of the technique that we're using. And it's always, we can always drop right back, right back to right here, back to our natural voice, be right here, be right now, and here's the audience, and look at them and speak directly to them. And we forget that. We don't realize that we, it's, that's what it's about. It's a conversation. I'm, maybe that's not the same. Maybe there's, I'm saying this from my experience. This is what, it, this is what makes it work for me. And this is, what it makes for, makes it, this is what works for me as a performer and also as a listener, as an audience member, is that when I feel there's a conversation and that person is coming straight to me without those filters, that's when, I'm gonna, that's when I really am... I wake up and I'm engaged, I'm, inter- I'm interested, I'm excited about what they talk about. And when I'm talking to an audience, performing, even if I'm doing other characters and this, you know, whatever else is going on, I'm doing the string figures that I do and all of that stuff, I still want to know that I am right there, that these people are, are with me. And if I feel, if I sense that there's a lot of subtle cues that we can go by, there's the not-so-subtle ones like kids Velcro going, scritch, 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 scritch. You know that well, something's not working. I better do, I've got to change something here. And a lot of times that changing is coming right out of the story and saying, 
how's your Velcro there? Do you kind of get you? Do you want to, you know what, you want to get your shoe, you know, we need to get your shoe settled, you know, to take your shoe off and want to, you know, get that sorted out. And then, and then it, the energy shifts in the room. Everybody's like, oh, that's, that's different. And then you can get back to, you can back, back to the material that you're in the middle of. There's subtle, there's obvious cues, there's subtle cues. You can, you can notice people, um, you know, people look at their watches, people bow their heads, look, look down, look away, stir in their seats, shift a lot. It's all kinds of things that if you're paying attention, you'll notice that. And if you're getting a lot of that shifting, and this is one of the things that I've done as a performer is I edit my material or I develop my material based on the response I get from the audience. So as I tell this story, I notice there's this one part in that story and it's that part right there where everybody shifts in their seat. And it's like this, it's like everybody does it right at that one moment. I go, okay, so then the question is, is it, do I want to have that shift there? Because we all need to shift at some point. Or do I want to hold them right through that part without the shift and let them shift when the story is over? So I find, I look at that part of the story and I go, what's going on in that part of the story right there? And what I found in some cases, I'm thinking one, one story in particular where this was, that at that part of the story, I was talking too much about something. And I, while I was talking about that something, I wasn't connecting as clearly with the audience. So I changed that part and they stopped shifting. So that's the way that I work my material. I like to go in with a piece of, with a story I want to tell, but I don't want to go in with it scripted. I don't want to go in with it already worked out which words I'm going to use and how I'm going to say it and blah, 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 blah. I want to go in there and I'm going to do it with this audience and see where the areas are that have that need that little bit of tweaking here, a little bit of tweaking there. And then the next group I work with, that I'm going to make those changes. And it just, it evolves. I mean, there's stories I've been telling for 20, um, however many years, and they still evolve. There's still little changes that come in and just play with that little bit there, play with that little bit. And I, I love that process. There's some people say, oh, geez, don't you get tired of telling the same story? You know, I don't. If I have a story that I love to tell, I love to tell it. And I, just, I delight in every audience's response, even if I'm telling it a bazillion times. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's delicious because it's, Every single time, I'm right there with this audience's response to that story, to those characters, to that moment, that moment right there. And I just, it's, it's, it's delightful. It's really good to have another voice describing, using different terminology, different words, the mm. same concept. Mm. Um, actually wrote an email course called The Zen of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. You listen to the artist just to tell me with children. That was my binky. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, there you There's a baby. That, that was a baby. That's the, but this is Priscilla Howe, and you are listening to the art of storytelling with children. Don't be fooled by that baby. One of the things I'm really curious about is how to teach authenticity to people. Mm. You know, and one of the things you talked about was just, just getting them to talk while eating so they relaxed and they weren't thinking about their performance voice. Do you have other, other tricks like that? Um... If I'm working with somebody one-on-one, I can, or in a workshop setting, there's different things like just to, to shift from the standard sitting or standing in front of a group. Like sit on the floor, sit on the floor, sit cross-legged on the floor, lie down on the floor, tell the story um, 
you know, stand on one foot, close your eyes, uh, just just to, to jolt us out of our habitual stance, as it were, and and play with how does the voice come out this way? How does my voice come out this way? I'll do um, workshops where we'll work on every, each person comes creates a tiny little story just about something that happened this morning. The alarm clock rang, I got out of bed, I went into the bathroom, splashed water on my face. That's a story that goes like about a minute of that sort of thing. Simple, but how, how we deliver it. How do we deliver it? How do we communicate those, that sequence of events? Uh, what voice do we use? And we experiment with all sorts of things. And we'll, you know, I'll stand, face the wall for a while and talk to the wall, talk to a partner, do it in partners, do it in a whole variety of ways. But basically just to keep, keep working at breaking down the habit. Because every, I shouldn't say everybody, but um, generally speaking, we tend to get into a habit of a way to perform, a way to deliver a story. Those can be quite encrusted. And when they become encrusted, then we are dealing with something that's lost its spark. It's lost its, its it needs to be, it needs to have life breathed into it. And we have to break out of some of the habits for that. So I'm not saying that I'm, you know, I mean, I have my habits. I, I like to, I like to have a microphone stand that I put my hand on it and it's, it's, it's a prop for me. It's like, it's like a wall that I lean on from time to time. And we all have these things that we do. But when we're stripped of those accessories or those, not just in the physical, not just like things, things, but like the, where, the way we stand or are we standing, are we sitting, how do we dress, how do we, how do we look, to just change stuff to see how it changes what we, what we deliver. The voice we give it to it, the words we choose, so we play with all those things to change, see how it changes the voice that we use, what words we choose, and what comes out. But we, it, it's playful. I mean, play. It, there's a huge component of risk and playful experimentation. Like just play with it, play with it, play with it, play with it. Don't. The thing that I think really stifles the the spark in a story sometimes is the tendency to say, oh, I like this story. Okay, I'm going to work up this story. I'm going to prepare this story. I'm going to rehearse it to death. I mean, I shouldn't say, well, we don't plan to rehearse anything to death. I'm going to rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it. I'll know it really well and then get in front of an audience and, and it just goes, it comes out all at once. It's a different process than if you, I mean, it sounds sort of trite to say it, but you know, you internalize the story. But you know it so well that you could dream that story. You can you can feel that story. So then you take that story in front of an audience and you see how this audience draws it out of you. Am I going to start it with this or with this? And to take it, it's a much more, it's a much more risky way of telling a story. But if you're telling the story of what happened the day your grandmother died, you're not generally doing it from a rehearsed um, production. You're doing it from, and if you're talking to this, this group, you might start with that event. And if you're talking to that group, you might start it that way. So that's the spirit of flexibility that I like to see brought into performance of storytelling. That, that ability to 
shift on the spot. Because if we can't shift, then we're not really talking to this group of people. We're talking to the group we thought we were going to have. We're talking to the group we planned or we expected to have. But we never get that group. We get this group. We get this audience. And we need to be here. There's something to be said for being here, you know, to, to seeing the room, to seeing the audience. And there's also something to be said for when, when people have a bad experience and they carry around the memory of that experience and it stays between them and the present. It stands between them and the present. And right. as performers, as performers, we really have to be careful because all performers eventually, as you go along, you will have a bad gig. Yeah. You'll have a bad Guaranteed. experience. Guaranteed. <laughs> ain't no one, there ain't nobody, I don't care what reward they have, what glo- Golden Globe or Emmy or National Storytelling Network, Reward of Excellence, there ain't nobody that hasn't had a time they've gone on stage and they haven't bombed, you know. It happens to the best people. And, you know, as you get better, it happens less and less and never. Everyone's gone through that fire. And it's very easy when you get in front of an audience in certain situations, you have a bad day or whatever, it's very easy to get drawn back to that memory and thinking, oh, no, it's happening again. <laughs> or And then the, the skill set of being able to say, no, this is the present. Mm-hmm. This is not the past. This is not the memory. This is this moment right here. It's just so valuable. Well, I think that a, a lot of what gets in our way is, you know, it's 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 ego. We we <laughs> we don't want to do a bad job. We don't want people to go, oh, that wasn't very good. And nobody wants that. And we have to sort of over we have to overcome that. I mean, what's what is the point here? What's the big picture? It's not about me, me, me. You know, but that's it is a tough one to overcome for sure. And it just takes, you know, just keep on going. You got to keep. You got to build up a lot of good experiences so that those bad ones can just fade. You know, learn from the. I mean, when I have a gig that I, it doesn't, it doesn't work as well as I wanted it to. Then I, I try to have an honest look at it. What did I do? I, oh, I went in with the wrong. I went in with expectations. When we go in with expectations, we can be pretty sure we're gonna, you know, we're gonna stub our toe somewhere along the way because this group is not the last group. This audience isn't yesterday's audience. It was, you know. It's this is going to be different and we it's so easy to forget that. That line is just a killer line. It's a great line. Oh shoot, it fell flat. What happened? You know, but it's not the same audience. So, that's the way it goes. I love to say God lets no pride go to waste. See, you didn't react the way everybody else. <laughs> well, I, didn't, I didn't understand what you said. Oh. I like to say, God lets no pride go to waste. Let pride, okay. One of the ideas I talk about on the show a lot is the idea of serving the moment. And I also talk about in service of stories. And then I talk about service of audience. These are each different different masters, so to speak. And they're kind of combined, too, but they can be separated out. And sometimes in a room, I have a calling to tell a particular story. And I know that that story will serve someone in that space. If, if done right, it can also serve the other masters <laughs> of the space, the time, the place. And if done poorly, I can lose the audience because there's only one or two people in that room who need that story. To me, it's an amazing experience of telling a story and having that person come after me with tears in their eyes. And they say to me, I just needed to hear that. 
thank you so much for that one story. And and that was the piece. I'm like, what am I telling this for? It doesn't belong in this place, but this is it's calling. It's calling forth. And I'm just curious about your experience of, you know, sometimes you do your set, you have stories, and sometimes you do your set and it's sort of characters um, and it kind of flows between and you're sort of obeying the moment, you're you're obeying the instinct of that place and time. And I was wondering if you ever have gone, had the experience of going to a gig and your expectation when you walk on a stage is you're going to do these five things and and when you end the piece, you're like, wait a minute, you just kind of wake up and you go, I didn't do those those five things. I didn't do any of the things I planned on doing when I got on stage. Your question is, has that does that happen to me that I just I go? In other words, so into the moment that you forget the plan that you had coming on. I mean, do you have a plan when you walk on stage? I mean, just in case. It, it depends on the venue, but for the most part, if it's a formal performance in a theater or something, then yes, I do have a plan. I'm not totally like winging, and I don't just go out there and wing it through a show. But there are moments where I'm winging it. There are elements in the show. There are things that I'll do with an audience where I will be winging it. I do a lot of winging it with the string figures, the strings, the string stuff that I do. And in less formal situations, I might go in, I mean, if it's a family event, of an event in a home or something like that, I don't usually go in knowing what I'm going to do. I'll go in there and just, I don't know the audience until I'm there. I don't know who, is, who it is. One of the, the gifts and one of the dangers of being in the moment is that you can go so far into the moment that you don't even you aren't even aware of the plan anymore you're just going along you're humming along you're in that place you're doing the thing and then you're the time's done and i'm just curious if that happens to you ever where you you have this plan and you're really the audience loves you and you're having a great time and you're serving the moment and you're you're doing the thing and do, do you ever wake up in a performance and go Oh, I was going to do that piece. It didn't happen. That's what I'm just curious. About. Maybe, but I'm thinking about like most of uh, most of my work in the last years has been school performances, and for those, I I pretty much you know each season I have a show that I'm doing, or I'll change it for that school if they won't have a particular request or something. But generally, I have the the blocks are set out, but in inside that structure, there are play moments. There are, there's areas where I can, you know, do something different or you know, this part's going to be a stretch. Let's see what we're going to do for the stretch. So things, there's moments of of improv, improving in all of that. But one of the, the things that happens a lot is at the end of the show, the school principal goes, looks at his, you know, looks at his or her clock and says, oh, it's over already? So I get that a lot. They're the ones who just are stunned that the time has passed and that 700 kids have been sitting there in the gym completely wrapped for this whole time. I want to talk about the string, because you are a string artist. So could you just briefly describe how you first encountered string, how you first became fascinated with string? I first encountered string in grade four. My, my good friend Betsy came to school with string and taught me stuff in, during math class, and then when she got back from the principal's office, she taught me some more. And that got me started, and we did it ferociously for a few years and then abandoned it. And in my late teens, I was given a book um, on string figures. And that's when I realized, A, I still knew how to do the stuff I'd done as a kid. My fingers had remembered it all. And B, there's a whole world, a whole universe of string figures all, all, all around the globe. 
and it goes back thousands of years and it's tied in with storytelling and t- traditions tied into a whole bunch of different components of different cultures so this got me interested and I started working with it and when I began performing I would use the strings as a visual hook and I did that for a long time they're fascinating they will hold the audience they will grab the most recalcitrant member of the audience and just rivet them right to your the mo- every movement of your hand is creating some shape out of string and it's it's, most people haven't seen a lot of these shapes, so they're really just dumbfounded by it. In recent years, I've taken it to another level, which is I'm going more and more going into communities and going into schools, and I'm teaching the kids how to make the string stuff, so group, class by class. I do a week-long residency like that, and during that week, I, dev- I see really interesting things happen in the school community, in the interactions between the kids, in individual students, and the teachers are constantly coming to me, reporting back to me months later saying, you know, this student is now reading better, it's now, you know, the behavior has changed, all sorts of changes, learning better, studying better, working better, interacting differently. They for the time I'm in the school and for the weeks afterwards, the whole their electronic g- gadgets are not as much in their hands. They're all of a sudden doing all this string stuff. And I'm fascinated by the changes. I think it really ties into a lot of uh, neurological important stuff that was, was in our cultures long ago and with mo- for the most part has been lost. So when I'm working with kids and they work, they're working, um, they're, Dexterity, d- developing dexterity with the string, but there's a lot more going on there. There's, there's a lot more to string figures than meets the eye. It's really, really interesting. So there are string designs and figurines from all over the world. You sure are. And, there, and wherever you go, there's different types of patterns, different types of images. And I talk about this when I'm working with older students. We'll do a string, a string tour of the world. And the, what, what kind of shapes do you get from this part of the world and what kind of shapes do you get from that part of the world? And what kind of rules govern the use of strings? Who plays with string? Who doesn't? Who's not allowed to? It's all, all kinds of things. It's really, really interesting. I've recently found out that on Easter Island, did you hear this? That Easter Island, you know, the, you know, the heads, the giant heads, they were built as a part of the island culture of contests. And they actually deforested the island in their effort to build the, all these different giant heads. And that, you know, that stopped just a few hundred years ago. But now the contest is string figures. Huh. So now all the different families are highly competitive. And, and Ruth's daughter, who is here at this conference, actually went to Easter Island and tried to get them. And they were all so like, oh, no, we can't teach you because you might teach one of the other families. You know, this one <laughs> finger. <laughs> yeah. So they're, yeah. you know, talk about going back to the roots of, of culture in various places in the world. Yeah, that whole aspect of competition is interesting. It's one of the things that I tell the, uh, when I'm working with older kids. Uh, often often it's string figures are perceived as a girl's thing. And uh, I tell the kids that on the west coast of Vancouver Island, the First Nations people there used to have it as a competitive activity among the men. The men would go from house to house after supper and compete with string figures. And when the boys hear that, it's like permission and you can just see the relief in their faces because they really want to get their hands on the string and they do phenomenal work with string the grades seven eight nine boys with strings get six and up they just they they really they really take to it how many figures can you do oh i don't know um 
one of the games I play in a show is I'll have the audience challenge me, and so I'm always inventing new ones on the spot. I'm not among string people. There are many, many people who are far more have more expertise in the string in the world of string, and they they do more intricate forms and they've studied the history of them and so forth. I use the string figures that I have with a range of complexity. I use them extensively in my performances and in my workshops. I'm quick at them and I can do them behind my back and I can do them with my eyes closed and and you know it's it's a sh- it's it's showy in a way but it's also totally accessible so I can break it down and make it so the kids can learn this stuff. So I've worked with um kids ranging from kindergarten even preschoolers have done string figures with preschoolers and a lot of people think well the preschoolers they can't even tie a knot. Well I do a story with the string that teaches them how to tie a knot. And they should know. We should all know how to tie a knot. So th- that's one of the things I love to do is 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 make this string work. Although it looks flashy and fancy, if, if it's done you know in certain ways, it's accessible. It is accessible, and everybody who picks up a string and starts doing a string shape can create something, learn something, teach something, invent something. One of the other things I noticed about your storytelling is you use a lot of sign language. Could you just talk about where that comes from? I started using sign language um, fairly early on in my storytelling. I was did a lot of work in schools where there would be special needs kids, heart, kids who used sign either for um, because of hearing issues or because of other special needs issues. And so I started building sign language. And actually, the first time, what happened? I was just. I don't think I had actually started studying sign language when somebody came up to me after a performance and said, I loved how you put sign language in. And I went, huh? Because I didn't know any sign language. She said, oh, yeah, you did this sign, you did this. And she started showing me all the signs that I'd been using. And I had no idea that I was doing that. I knew I was you know, gesturing and stuff. But it turns out that there were some some signs that I had somehow absorbed and put into the story. So that got me kind of intrigued. So then I started studying it more formally, and I'm, I'm by no means fluent in sign, but I like to integrate it into the stories. I actually do a lot of work with sign language as a visual bridge between English and French because one of the things I do a lot is perform bilingually as a means of teaching French. So it, using the sign means I don't need to do any translating. There's no redundancy in the story. I don't have to say something in the, the French, the line in French and then repeat it in English. I don't like that. I like to just tell the story and they're watching my hands so they know what they know what the French that I just said, they know what that means. They know what's going on. So I use it as a, I use it a lot as a tool for the French. In Canada, there's a, a large and very active, very strong native community. And there's also a very strong French community. And both these communities are minorities of of Canadian culture overall. But they but Canada has built in many ways a a culture of acceptance or a culture that, that minorities will be respected. And you are going into some of these communities and working with them and and your background is Caucasian. Mm-hmm. Um and so I'm just curious if you could just talk about what what really makes that work for you when you go into a native community as a Caucasian storyteller? Mm-hmm. How, how, what, what things could you pass on to other artists that would help them to create successful experiences? Well, when I go into native communities, um, I'm very conscious of 
being a white person going in as a storyteller. So, and storytelling, of course, is such a big part of their tradition. I don't, I, I don't want to be stepping on toes. I certainly don't tell their stories, and I don't even. I mean, I tell stories, but I put a lot of emphasis on the string figures in those communities because they are communities, they are cultures that used to have the string figures not that long ago. And the elders will sit around the edges and they'll watch and they'll see the strings and they'll nod and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you remember we used to do that. And I like to see the string. I can't do the same string figures that those cultures used to have. I don't know what they would have been, but I like to bring back at least the possibility of recreating that world of play and of invention and of stories with string. And I love to see, I mean, everybody takes to it so naturally and everybody who sees the string work wants to do it. They want to see it again. They They want to get a string on their own hands, adults and kids. So I love that aspect of working in the native communities. I feel that's really is an important, an important part of it. In terms of being a storyteller who who performs both in French and English, in Canada, as an American, I can imagine there's lots of things that I don't even know about in terms of uh, French culture and Quebec and performance. Uh, yeah, I mean, what what does it mean to be fluent? in French because one of the things you were talking about yesterday we were just doing something hanging out somewhere and you you were saying how there are many people who are forced to take French because of the constitution in Canada that everyone will learn French and you know French and English will be equal and so there are many English speakers who are like I don't want to take French and you're actually hired to do residencies to help encourage them Um, and so I'm just curious about that experience of of how you encourage people who may not be interested in learning French. Okay. Canada is an officially bilingual country. So, league, you know, federally, the two languages are, are on equal footing. In British Columbia, it's mandatory to study French starting in, I think it's grade five, maybe grade four. And a lot of people say, like, a lot of people are resistant to it. Some people, ah, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's hard to see the connection. What's the relevance of French? We're way out here in the West Coast. Quebec is way over there. So um, so I, I have, for many, many years, been brought into different school districts to work with, the, to, to, to see what, how can we inspire kids to get, get them more interested. And strings and stories are fabulous because I can do these stories that I start off in English, get them hooked, throw in a string figure, they're really hooked, and then we sort of wander over into French and then we wander back into English and then there's some sign language and they can see what's going on and then there's another string figure and this meandering between the two languages and by the end of the story, they're, they are chanting along with me in French without having had to accept that they're going to do French. They, I never, you know, I don't say, now we're going to do French, boys and girls. I just say, we're going to do a story. And by the end of it, they're doing all this saying all this stuff in French and they're keen they're enjoying it so they get out of that they might learn some words of French but more importantly we've we've chiseled away at the barrier in their mind which says I cannot learn I cannot understand another language so that's the piece I like to get at I've been a linguist uh, and a lover of languages since since I was a uh, since I was quite young since about eight I just got intrigued in languages intrigued by languages and it's one of the things I love sharing in my work is um, not 
not French per se, French because it's the it's one of the languages that I speak, but just openness to other languages. We in North America are so rooted in this uni, you know, this one culture, one language society, and we totally oblivious of the rest of the world. Most people in the world speak more than one language, and here we are. So I like to bring it up, bring that forward with kids. I go into some some areas and encourage the and I'm hired to go into classes and talk to the kids. He's basically like a motivational speaker. Go in and talk to them about learn another language, learn another language, learn another language, whatever you can get your hands on. That's what it was for me when I was in grade two. I wanted to learn another language, and the first thing that came along was French. And I went up to the kids. I wasn't old enough, but I went up to the kids who were old enough to be learning French in class, and I was shy and scared of these big kids and I went up to one of these big kids and asked what did you learn in French today and she said we learned le livre la fenêtre la maman and I went home practicing those mildly butchered French words and that was my first experience of speaking another language and I was on fire I couldn't wait to do more so I was a bit of a driven uh, you know Language do you speak, or are you mildly experienced in other languages? I used to be fluent in German. It's most of it's, you know, it's very, very rusty. And I studied Spanish. And there's a whole bunch of languages that I have, you know, a few phrases. This is Elizabeth Ellis, and you've been listening to the Art of Storytelling with Children. We've really run out of time, so I need to ask you what your offer is. Oh, my offer. Well, we met Monkey earlier. Monkey and I made a CD. That is to say, I made a CD, but Monkey, the babysitter, canceled, so she had to come to the studio with me. So um, we have uh, we have this CD called Ann Glover in the Studio with Monkey, and it's a lot of fun. And let's see, how shall I put this? I have 20 copies of the CD to go out to the first 20 people to send me an email and say, heard your interview, would love a copy of the CD with Monkey. That's very generous. Here's another offer. Go to my website, Ann Glover, that's Ann, A-N-N-E, AnnGlover.ca. Go to my website. Watch the promo video there. There's a little there's shots of me in performance doing string tricks. There's also a page called String Stuff that shows some of the gives you some information on doing string tricks. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. And there's a really cool page called I think it's called What People Say or something like that. And it's full of all these testimonials from kids, and they're fabulous. They're they're really they're just they're a blast. I love them. And for my offer. I have an offer which, for once, is actually completely on theme, which is my e-course, Zen and the Art of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. It's a nine-part email. But here's the really cool thing. On YouTube right now, I have up seven videos I made on each of these different steps, including one video on the importance of being in the moment and being authentic. And I I recorded these while I was at the Smithsonian, performing at the Smithsonian uh, Folklife Festival. Well, I shouldn't say performing. I was emceeing at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, and I, I went to all the different national monuments, and I performed each one in front of a different national monument. <laughs> the information is great, so you should bear through. And they're, they're very short. It's just well, Some are two minutes, some are as long as six or seven. 
And another great resource that you might want to take advantage of is if you're listening for the first time to this track, I really invite you to go to the website at storytellingwithchildren.com and write a comment on the blog. Because if you're a storyteller or you're an organizer and you need Google love, and my website at this point has really attracted a lot of Google love. It's very well respected. If you're trying to raise your visibility of your website, one of the best ways to do that is to get a free link from a website. And lo and behold, my blog, you write a comment, you add your link, your website address in the comment box, and presto, you get a free link. And for those people who just want to go and get the free link, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to accept your comment without a real comment. You know, you listen to the show and you want to write Anne a note saying how wonderful it was to listen to her and her encouragement of being in the moment and being authentic to your voice. So do you have any final words of wisdom for the international storytelling community? I don't know about wisdom, but I just want to say how much, what a pleasure it's, it's been. We're here at this at the 2009 conference at Waikiki, and it's been just fabulous meeting so many interesting people and going for great swims every morning. <laughs> hey, hey, monkey, come over here. Tell us the last. Give us the last piece of a piece monkey? of monk. I don't know if she's still there. Monkey, are you around the corner? What are you doing? I don't know. Are you talking to me? Yes, sweetie. What are you doing? Well, Anne. Yes, monkey. I really, really want to get ice cream, but the problem is. Yes, monkey. I'm not sure if I want to get banana or chocolate kind. How about both, monk? Now, now, monkey. There's a lot of people listening to us right now. Who? Um, I don't really know them all, but I could start listing them. Is Lisa listening? I'm sure there's one Lisa. Is it the Lisa? <laughs> I have no idea. But I was wondering if you had any last words of wisdom about storytelling. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, you make me cry. Um, what is the last words of advice that you'd give? Um... Don't, no, wait, always, no, wait a second, oh, you should always, um, you should always be sure to know which kind you want, chocolate or banana. (laughs) And I actually think that's a really important point. Because one of the things we've been talking about in this conversation and dancing around is that when you go on stage, you really have to know, you have to visualize, you have to believe in what you are doing. You have to really make your choice in being there. And if you get on stage and you're trying to serve too many masters, if you're trying to serve the ego and the intellect, the idea, and you're trying to serve the the client, the person who's writing your check, and you're trying to serve the audience, and you're trying to serve yourself, all of a sudden, you just you have too much going on, too many balls in the air, and so it's just really important to really know if you want chocolate or banana. Isn't that right, monkey? Yeah. Now, can we go get ice cream? Yeah, sure, no problem. Okay. <laughs> so, this is Eric Wolf, and you've been listening to the Art of Storytelling with Children. Thank you so much, Anne, for coming on the show. You're welcome, Eric. Let's go, monkey. Okay. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. 
You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, are we ready now? Check, one, two, one, two, check, 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 check. One, two, one, two, check. Okay? Okay, monkey, so what you're going to do beyond the sound check is you're going to interview Jeff, okay? Why? Because that's what we're doing. You're interviewing Jeff about the the, uh, conference that he just produced. Why? Because people want to know about it. Well, why should I? Because, monkey, you said you were going to do this. (laughs) Okay. Hi, Jeff. Monkey, come on. Wait, 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 wait. Monkey, you have to sound like you're interested. But what if I don't really feel very interested? (laughs) You have to make it sound like you are. Okay. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Monkey. Um, Oh, Jeff, wait a second. Jeff, actually, do you know what? You have to make it sound like you're interested. Uh, How how should I say it? You say, hi, Monkey. Would you like some ice cream? Hi, Monkey. Would you like some ice cream? Yes, I would. Okay, is the interview over? <laughs> no, 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 Monkey, you've got to talk about the conference. Okay, um, Jeff, what was the conference? It was very nice, and we all had a lot of fun. And now do we get ice cream? No, Monkey, you got to ask <laughs> more. You, Jeff is the one who, like, he had the idea, he made it all happen. Jeff, what is six times seven? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. You, what? What did you say? Okay, well, um, I don't think you know the numbers after 20. Oh, I do. 21? 22. Do you know 23? I know 23 and I know 24. Whoa, okay. (laughs) Do you know 27? And 32. Whoa! Okay, wait a second. 37? And 40. 42? question for you. Um, why did you <laughs> do that conference thing and you didn't invite uh, me? 
Well, because I think you sort of invited me to that conference thing, especially because you guys, like, it was right across the street from this place where they keep monkeys. <laughs> and I could have visited them every single day, and I didn't even know they were there, except I could hear them sometimes making noises, and then you know what no, happened? No, wait, wait, wait. M- monkey, Jeff invited, invited Anne, and Anne's your friend. Anne brought you. I know, but Jeff should have said to Anne, be sure to bring a monkey, because Anne didn't even tell me. Anne just gets all the bag ready, and then she says, monkey, I'll see ya. And then I have to just say, what? And then she goes, I'm going to the airport, and I have to just jump in her pocket and come along. And then she says, monkey, what are you doing here? And then she has to get me through customs, and I don't have a, uh, what is that thing called? Passport. Oh, yeah, I don't have a passport. And so then the guys at Customs, they say, like, okay, uh, Aunt Glover, where are you going? And I said, we're going to Honolulu. And they said, who are you? And then didn't it have any paper for me? And so I had to hide in the bathroom. And then... Do you know what happened? Somebody came in the bathroom and I was hiding. You know how you go in the t- in the room inside the, the bathroom and you pull your feet up and hide and you close the door so you look like nobody's there? <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, Monkey? Yeah? Is this still about the interview with Jeff about the conference? Yeah. Is It is, isn't it, Jeff? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Okay, so I was... Monkey. Yeah? Are you sure this is about the conference? Well, Anne, um, <laughs> they, they, they said why shouldn't... They, they want to know. They might want to know, you know, like, maybe we should talk, let Jeff talk some more about the conference itself. No, but first we have to talk about me because I was hiding <laughs> in the bathroom and then all of a sudden... Somebody came in and turned off the light in the bathroom. And then, do you know what happened, Jeff? No. Well, I'll tell you. Because you should know. Mm. Because if you ever have to go through customs and you don't have a passport and you have to hide in the bathroom, Mm -hmm. you should know if they come in and turn off the light, Mm -hmm. you better know what to do. Mm Mm-hmm. So I did. And then you know what happened? I do. Please tell me. Okay, I will. (laughs) Well, I said, hello. (laughs) And then somebody said, who's in there? And it was like a bit of a sort of scary voice. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And then, um, luckily, I jumped over the wall just when they came in. And it was a crocodile. I've met you and that crocodile in a story in front of everybody in the whole world. They were all said, my, that monkey is a really smart little monkey. I know, because you know what I did? I tricked tricked the crocodile. I made the the crocodile go back in customs, and then he bit the guy's foot, and then I got (laughs) through, and I got back in Ant's pocket, and I came to Honolulu. And then I got to see the monkeys. And, oh, by the way, Jeff... Yes. How was your conference, Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) It was really neat. Okay, that's good. (laughs) Now, uh, neat, did you say? Neat, yeah, neat. It was really neat. 
like clean, you mean, or like? I mean, like neat, like neato, like swell, like wow, like Popeye, like big, big was news. Popeye was at the conference. No, but but eyes were popping. Oh, that's so gross. Do <laughs> you know what? I can make my eye pop sometimes. Okay. I can't I that and it hurt. Yeah, it kind of hurt when it popped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't but do that often. Will you give me back my eye, please, Jeff? Sure. <laughs> can I help you put it right back? Don't in? eat it. That's my eye. Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> yeah, here. <laughs> and doesn't like it when I do this. <laughs> Luckily, she's up in the room. And? Yes? Never mind, it's fine. <laughs> I'm glad she has the back. Open your mouth. <laughs> oh, I can't see anything. Yeah, right. Jeff, you? can what I have? Well, can just, I? Like, can ready, I? Ready, ready, and here we go. Okay, ahead. wait. <laughs> you got the wrong one. <laughs> oh, I'm cross-eyed. <laughs> Everything looks you know. backwards. We'll oh, maybe that's what happens to those people who don't read things frontwards. Do you know what I mean? Maybe somebody took their eyes out and put them in backwards. Maybe, Maybe that's what happened, and then, oh, then we can, Jeff, I got an idea. What? Let's go find those people that we backwards them. Eyes out. Yeah. We can help them out, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's so good that I met you, because now I have something to fulfill my life. I really didn't know what to do after this conference. Oh. <laughs> what are you going to do? Special project on iPop it. iPod? <laughs> iPop. Is that like iPhone or something? Well, it's like Popeye, but in the right other oh, way around. Popeye, bye, Popeye, yeah. I get it, I get it. I, it's, it's, wait a second. Pitches. Get it? Get it? Get it? Do you get it, Jeff? Because you went Popeye, I pop, and, and Popeye likes spinach, and spinach backwards is pitches. Right? Yeah. Yeah. How's the interview, monkey? Good. You can keep packing. <laughs> I think, actually, how's it going in here? Well, Fine. it's eye-popping. How is my eyes looking? <laughs> <laughs> monkey, have you been... No, Jeff made me. Yeah. See? <laughs> and you know what? What, monkey? Uh, Jeff said he's going to give me, because we're going on the airplane really soon, guess what he's going to give me? Mm, what, monkey? He said he's going to give me a big bucket full of ice cream for the airplane ride. Is that right? Yeah, didn't you, Jeff? Yep. Well, monkey, you're going to have to, you're going to have to, uh, uh, you can't take it through customs. That what? <laughs> that's right But that's okay, I'll get that crocodile to bite the guy again And then I'll take it through well, You're going to have to eat it all before we get there Because it's going to melt anyway
No, it's not because I'm going to eat it. Okay, I got to go because I'm going to go. Wait, wait, wait. You're going to be a hyperactive monkey on the airplane? You're going to eat all that ice cream before you get to the airport? Are we going to the airport? Well, monkey, we have to get on the airplane. Now? Tonight. Really? Mm-hmm. What about going to bed? We're going to sleep on the airplane. No, not. <laughs> yeah, I figured. But Well, that's the idea. If we don't sleep, but anyway, we're going to be on the airplane overnight, and then when we get back home, it'll be morning. Oh, and then it'll be time for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Ice cream. No. Maybe. <laughs> Whatever. We'll Have you finished your interview? Yeah. But I think Jeff should ask me a question now. <laughs> Monkey. Oh, but guess what? You know what, <laughs> Jeff? Mm-hmm. No, Monkey, let him ask a question. Yeah, you wanted him to ask a question. Okay. Well, I think I know the answer to the question, but I, I, I wouldn't mind asking. I, I bet I know what the question's going to be. What do you think the question's going to be? Monkey, let him ask a question. Go ahead. Okay. My question is oh, what... Oh, I know that one. <laughs> I know that one. I totally know that one. Monkey, he didn't even get a chance to get three words out. Let, let him ask the question. Okay. My question for you, little monkey monk. Can I is go to the bathroom first? <laughs> <laughs> monkey, just just hold on. Yeah. Let him ask the question. Well, I, was, I think I know the answer to the question, but if you don't mind, I'll ask you the question. Can I ask you the question? Well, <laughs> okay. Is it, is it really true that, that you like ice cream? Well... Actually, uh, just let me before before we launch into monkey's discussion about ice cream. What, how are we doing on time? Are we need to get, get to the <laughs> oh, airport I because see. once monkey gets started on ice cream, we're but I won't say very monkey. Just hang on. Let me just know Where, what time. Nine o'clock. Well, I can tell you lots of things about <laughs> ice cream because I like chocolate and monkey. I like banana. What kind do you like? I really like <laughs> banana and chocolate together. What do you like? Well, I I really, really like chocolate and banana together. Really? Yeah. That's sort of good, but maybe not so good because I want that. Okay. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll be friends, right? Okay, we'll be friends. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for this interview. I've got to go to work and, and get some ice cream and ban- a banana. I'm going with you. And chocolate. Yay! Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.